Why does he allow pain and suffering and illness to exist? This is a serious question. It's a question that will be dealt with in John chapter 9, our passage for today. C.S. Lewis framed the question this way in his book, The Problem of Pain. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. My atheist friends would add to that, therefore, your Christian God does not exist. There are basically three philosophies, three philosophies that try and deal with the question of why bad things happen. And each one of these philosophies that I'm going to address are unscriptural. Number one, God is good, but he's not powerful enough to prevent bad things from happening. Rabbi Harold Kushner in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, said this, God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives, but sometimes even he can't bring that about. It is too difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims. This is false. This is an attack on the omnipotence of God. It's a way of saying God's good, but he's not really all-powerful. He's not really almighty. That first philosophy is unscriptural and fundamentally false. The second philosophy that I would submit to you today that is out there that tries to deal with the question of why bad things happen is the prosperity gospel. Good things only happen to good people and bad things only happen to bad people. That's at the core of the prosperity gospel. Now they focus on the first part. But the first part means the second part too. I mean, the prosperity gospel is if you got cancer, if you lost your loved one, you got a bad back, you lost your job, you got financial difficulty, you've got some difficulty in your life, it's because God is disciplining you. But if on the other hand, you're rolling in the dough and you got good health, you got health, wealth, and prosperity, that's because God is blessing you. This is the core of the fundament of the it's the fundamental core of the prosperity gospel, and it is shallow and unbiblical. Today in John chapter nine, Jesus' disciples will think kind of similar to this way of thinking. The scripture teaches that suffering and and prosperity may or may not be dependent or be caused by the blessing or the punishment of God. It depends. The third philosophy that is out there that deals with the question of why bad things happen, why evil exists, why suffering exists, is the philosophy of atheism. Atheism atheism tries to deal with the problem of pain and evil by removing God or by trying to remove him. And of course, this is self-defeating because the only reason we know anything about good and evil is because of God. God is the standard by which we gauge good and evil. If there is no God, then there is no good and there is no evil. There's just me and what I want and you and what you want. If there is no God, then pain and suffering and evil run rampant. Of course, this is what we have in our society, in our culture today. Atheism has removed the internal restraints, and it has increased, not decreased, the ills of society. The old Speaker of the House of the U.S. US House of Representatives from the 1800s, a man by the name of Robert Charles Winthrop, says it well. Men in a a word must necessarily be controlled, either by a power within them or by a power without them, either by the word of God or by the strong arm of man, either by the Bible or by the bayonet. We have abandoned both. We have abandoned, in our atheistic culture, we have abandoned the Bible and a capital punishment. When he says the bayonet, he means capital punishment. And our society suffers greatly because of this. In reality, we're really asking ourselves the wrong question. 
We're asking ourselves the wrong question. We're asking if God is good and God is almighty, how can he allow pain and evil and suffering to exist in the world? This is a man-centered question. When I ask that question, it betrays my arrogance. When I ask that question, it reveals that I want a God, that you want a God who is omnipotent but not sovereign. You see, we want a God that we can direct, that we can direct His omnipotence for our purposes. We're okay with an all-powerful God as long as He beats to our drum, as long as we can control Him, as long as we can wield His omnipotence for our purposes. We're good with that, which is to say we want to be sovereign, not Him. I mean, that's sovereignty, right? Sovereignty is authority. You see, we find very, very attractive the serpent's argument to the woman, you will be like God. This is the reason why, well, this is the core of that question. It's, 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 it's at the center of the question. God, why do you allow these things to exist? There is a much better question to ask. The better question to ask is, why did God, knowing what I thought and said and did yesterday, why did God not kill me in my sleep last night? That's the better question. And I didn't rob a bank yesterday. I didn't murder anybody. I didn't commit adultery. Yesterday, I was glued to this document, studying. But I still think it's a legitimate question. Why did God not kill me in my sleep last night? Same for you. That's the better question. Why does God not destroy us all? Because we are fundamentally wicked. How's that for good news Sunday morning? It's just the truth. It's the truth that the Scripture declares, but the Scripture doesn't end there. The Scripture begins with the bad news and then gives the good news. That by Almighty God... He will transform a a wicked, dark heart. You see, asking the question that way, of why God does not destroy us all because of our sinfulness, that question recognizes our wretchedness before a holy, righteous God. It recognizes the reality that we live in a fallen, broken world which our forefather, Adam, handed over to the devil. Here's the truth. The truth is we don't know exactly why God allows evil or pain or suffering or illness to exist. But we know this. God is good. Can I get an amen? God is good. And God is holy. And God loves us. And God, make no mistake, is sovereign and is almighty. We know that we live in a world that is fallen and broken. And we know that deep down inside, the part of us that we don't want to talk about, that's there, that we don't share with anybody else, deep down inside, we know that we're broken, that we're sinful. And a fallen, broken world, which is made up of us, we're the problem, produces suffering and evil. In John chapter 9, Jesus will teach us why sometimes... Sometimes God allows suffering. Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9 if you're not already there. Verse 1 reads like this. As he passed by, the he there is Jesus. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. We will know, we will learn from verse 8 that this man was also a beggar. You see, in ancient times, you didn't have many options. If you were blind, begging was probably the the only option you had to survive. The point that we're being told here by the Apostle John is that this man is utterly helpless, in a hopeless condition that he has been in since birth. He symbolizes how we all are before we come to Christ, spiritually blind beggars. That's who we are before we come to Christ, hopeless, helpless with zero To offer God. I said that wrong. We have negative 
It's not that it's not that there's nothing to offer God. That's true, but there's more than that. It's a negative that we offer God because God is holy and we are unholy. God is righteous and we are sinners. This person that we're introduced to at the very beginning of John chapter 9, this blind beggar, hopeless and helpless, is a picture of all of us before we come to Jesus Christ. Keep reading in verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? We don't know why God allows people to be born with handicaps. We don't know that. God does. And don't you dare walk up to somebody and say, that baby was born with a handicap because you sinned, Mama. Or because you sinned, Daddy. If you hadn't done blah, 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 your child wouldn't have been born like that. Don't you dare do that. Because you don't know. And you are very arrogant if you do that. Here Jesus says something that addresses the issue. In a general sense, all pain and death and illness does come from sin. Right? God didn't create the world or humanity that way. Pain and illness and suffering come because we are in a fallen, broken world. They came about through Adam's sin. Paul says in Romans 5.12, Just as through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And there is no question that God does impose divine discipline in the form of physical illness. That is one of the tools in God's toolbox of discipline. You read about that in Leviticus 26, in Deuteronomy 28, in 1 Corinthians 11. But every pain and every illness is not necessarily divine discipline. Job's misinformed friends are evidence of that. The Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh is evidence of that. The disciples have been misled by the teaching of the day. Back then, some of the rabbis had strange teachings. One of the teachings was that a baby could sin in the baby's mama's womb. The baby could commit sin in the womb, and that would bring divine discipline on the child. Or a pregnant mother's idolatry could create divine discipline for the unborn child. In verse 3, Jesus responds to the disciples' question, And his response is very unexpected, at least to them. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus isn't saying that God caused the blindness for this man. He's saying God allowed it. God allowed this baby to be born handicapped, with blindness, and he allowed it to bring glory to his name. You say, I don't like that. That doesn't seem fair to me, that God would allow a baby to be born with a handicap. Be careful. Be careful when you go to God and you judge God. Whenever the creature is judging the Creator, you know you're on shaky, shaky, unstable ground you know you're doing wrong. Before this chapter is over, this man will be saved and will proclaim the great and awesome name of Christ. This man is in heaven today, this man who was born blind, that God allowed to come forth from his mother's womb with damaged eyes. This man is in heaven today as we speak because of the events of chapter 9. And I suspect he's not in heaven asking people, why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow illness? Why does God allow evil? I don't imagine that he's bummed out in heaven that he was born blind, that God allowed him to be born blind. I suspect there are many believers in heaven today because of the events of this man in John chapter 9, and they're praising him. They're thanking him. Of course, they're praising God first, but they're praising what God did through the blindness of this Man who was born blind. 
we need to be careful how we approach this topic. Very, very cautiously. God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Keep reading in verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, Jesus says, night is coming when no one can work. Jesus was sent by the Father to do the Father's work. After his departure, he will send the disciples. They'll stop being called disciples, which is follower or student, and they'll be called apostles. Apostle means sent one. And he sends us as ambassadors, right? We're ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. We have a limited amount of time on earth to do God's work. Now, we must do it in his power, not ours, for his glory, not for ours. But we have a limited amount of time on earth. Tick, tock, tick, tock goes the clock. When we're young, we're like, ah, it's all good. I'm invincible. I'm going to live forever. The older we get, the more we realize, eh, that's not true. That's fundamentally false. That's not true at all. And so we need to be mindful that the clock is ticking. And we need to ask God, what work does he have for us? I mean, do you ever pray that? You ever pray, God, will you make clear to me the spiritual gift? Many of us have spiritual gifts that we're simply sitting on and we're doing nothing with. It's a sad, sad reality of many Christians. God has given you a spiritual gift. Every one of us has a spiritual gift. At the moment of salvation, you receive a spiritual gift. Are you using it? Have you asked God to make it clear to you? Because he has given you work to do. Get to work. Now, you're not working for your salvation. Salvation has already been worked by the one on the cross. So this work is not for salvation, but you have been saved to do the works of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Don't forget verse 10. But we are his workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus. So we're created to work. I mean, like a church. A church needs workers. Right? Some, some organizations, I used, to, I, used to, I used to hear of the, of the rule, the 80-20 rule. Right? 20% of the people do 80% of the work. In a church, that's not the case. It's the 95-5 rule. 5% of the people do 95% of the work. It shouldn't be so. But it is, because a lot of people, they... They don't, they don't pursue their spiritual gift. They don't pursue the work. This is what Jesus is talking about. Work while it's day. Because when it's nighttime, they didn't have any shop lights back then. Nighttime, you're done with your work. Jesus is saying you've got a limited, a finite amount of time. And when that time is up, which might be today, we don't know. Any one of us, our time might be up today. When that time is up, that's when nighttime is. In other words, your time to work is finished. This is the analogy. We would use the, the idiom of make hay while the sun is out. This is the, the, the imagery that Jesus is using here between day and night. Verse 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus isn't saying once I leave the world with my death, resurrection, and ascension, I'll stop being the light of the world. He's saying, while my light shines here, I am on the the planet. My light shines brightest while I am here. Now, after his departure, the disciples and each generation thereafter, including us, are his light. Part of the work that God has designed us for, not just to to help in a church, but with your neighbors. I mean, I, I hope you tell your unbelieving neighbors, your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving family members about Jesus. That's work for God. You do it for his glory, not for yours. In his power, not in the power of the flesh. But we are called to be his light. In verse 6, Jesus will do the work of God. Verse 6, when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. 
I don't think this blind man minded Jesus rubbing his spit and dirt on his face. I don't think he minded that at all, minded him rubbing it on his eyes. Why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus use this procedure of his saliva and dirt, mixing it in the mud and then putting it on his eyes? Why that procedure? Was he creating a teaching aid to show that he is the creator God of Genesis 2-7, who formed man from the dust of the ground? Was he creating a teaching aid to reveal that he was sent by the Father to give light to the spiritually blind, so he sent this blind man, someone must have held the blind man's hand or escorted him, so he sent the blind man to the location called Sent, to the pool of Sent, Silom means Sent, John translates it for us, gives us that meaning. I mean, is that what Jesus is doing, using a, a teaching aid here? Or was Jesus, the, the, the reason he used this procedure was it to intentionally violate the Pharisees' made-up interpretation of what could be done on the Sabbath in order to expose their hypocrisy? I mean, this was the Sabbath. We'll learn that in a moment. And you know, Jesus loves to do miracles on the Sabbath. He loves to do them on the Sabbath to expose how the Pharisees couldn't care less about the people's well-being to expose their hypocrisy. We'll see more of that in a moment. All of these options, these options I just described of Jesus using this procedure for all of these different ways, they all seem reasonable, but we don't know because the text doesn't tell us why he did it. It just says he used this process. Verse 8, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. Those who knew this blind man, this man born blind, this beggar, didn't recognize him. In their mind, they saw him as a hopeless, helpless, blind beggar. And they'd seen him that way for so long they couldn't perceive him any other way. So he has to repeat over and over. Look at the end of verse 9. He kept saying, that's me. I'm the guy. I'm the same guy, but now I'm different. Now I see. I was blind, but now I see. You know, Paul's language from 2 Corinthians 5, where he says that after we trust in Christ, we are a, quote, new creature. This man hasn't trusted in Christ yet, but he will by the end of the chapter. Keep reading in verse 10. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? When it comes to God, insisting on the answer of the how is not always a good thing. Insisting on an answer to the how question is not always the right approach. How did God create the universe with a word when he said, Let there be light? Let there be an expanse between the waters above and the waters below the sky. Let there be animal creatures. Let there be creatures in the seas. How did he do that? I don't know. How did God breathe life, breathe the nachshama into the nostrils, it says, of the first Adam, of the first man, who was Adam, and make him from the dust of the earth? How do you take dirt and make it into flesh and bones and hair? I don't know. How does God become a man? Deity and humanity united in one person forever. Not two separate people, not two separate persons, not two separate entities. One person with two natures that don't seem to fit very well together. Right? Omniscience and limited knowledge of a baby. Omnipotence, and this man is limited in his power. Omnipresence, he's everywhere, and yet he's limited in time and space. Eternality, and yet he dies. How does that work? I don't know. How does God raise a man from the dead so that he walks through doors in his new body and eats food and travels up to space without a space helmet to the third heaven and sits? 
How does that work? How? I don't know. And that's okay. As we saw in the 930, there are two things that we know for certain. That he is God and we are not. That's what we know. And the words of the old German theologian, Terstegen, from a few centuries back, are apropos. A God who is comprehended is no God at all. If you could fully explain God and God's attributes, he wouldn't be God. You'd be God. You'd be God. But the God of the Bible is a God who is completely beyond comprehensible. He is completely beyond what our minds can comprehend. He is inscrutable. Yet he reveals himself. He humbles himself and comes as a man. And he reveals to us that which we need to know. Keep reading in verse 11. He answered, The man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Jesus didn't take the man to the pool of Siloam. Someone else must have. And so the man doesn't know where Jesus is. He only knows his name. You will learn much more about him. Keep reading in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. They ask this question how not to marvel at the great work of God that has been done through the one God sent, Jesus They're asking the how question, not to praise God, but to look for something to accuse Jesus with. Keep reading in verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. You remember the Sabbath is the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. All Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament except for Sabbath observance. But they were under Sabbath observance. And the fourth commandment was designed by God as a day of rest, as a day of worship. Everyone was excused from work. It was a blessing so that on that day, on Saturday, that was the Sabbath day, you didn't have to earn a living. In fact, everybody was excluded and and precluded from earning a living. You had to trust God that he would provide for you on that seventh day, seventh day of their week. But in their religious zeal, the Pharisees perverted the blessing of God and turned the day of rest into a burden. This is what man does. It is a pathetic, sad reality for human beings. We pervert every blessing of God without exception. There is not a single blessing that God has given to us that we do not pervert. Not one. We pervert sex. We pervert money. We pervert power. We pervert position. They perverted the Sabbath. You know, don't throw too many tomatoes at them. Because we need some tomatoes thrown at us too. It's the the sad, dark condition of the human heart. We are hopelessly wicked. Wicked. And we pervert the blessings of God. The Pharisees created 39 interpretations of prohibited work. And one of them was kneading. Kneading. You know, like someone who's kneading dough. No, 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 no. Don't knead the dough on Saturday. Knead your dough on, on, on Friday. Cook your bread on Friday. But not on Saturday. They just, they came up with a list of prohibited things. And healing... No, 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 no. No healing on on Saturday. No healing. Unless it was to save a life. So Jesus violates both of these. He violates both of their, both of these aspects of the made-up interpretations that that they had with respect to Sabbath observance. And so they concluded that he could not be from God. If Jesus were from God, he would have waited a day. He would have waited. Just come back tomorrow, Jesus. Heal this blind man tomorrow. 
Let him go one more day. He's gone his whole life like this. One more day where we can we kind of hold him around and he beg a little more. One more day is fine. Just come back tomorrow. If you were a man of God, you would come back tomorrow, Jesus, and heal this blind man tomorrow. That's really what they're saying. That's their attitude as the, as the religious leaders of Israel. This is why Jesus is always quick to expose their hypocrisy. Keep reading in verse 16. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. As we've seen, the Jesus of the Bible is divisive. It's not that he was rude. It's not that he was uncivil. He would not be in favor of jerks for Jesus, right? Some, some Christians think, I need to be a jerk for Jesus. No, don't do that. That's not what Jesus... Jesus was divisive, not because he was rude, but because he spoke the Word of God. And the Word of God in itself divides. And that's what has happened here. There was a division among them. Verse 17, So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. Now this is true. Jesus is a prophet, but he's much, much, much more than that. This man's faith will grow as the chapter unfolds. Verse 18, the Jews, meaning the religious leaders, then did not believe it of him, that he had been blind and had received sight. You see, ironically, the Pharisees have good eyes, but they can't see. Their unbelief has made them blind. They're unable to see the works of God. Verse 18, the Jews then did not believe it of him, that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? How? Right? They keep asking the question, how? Not because they glorify God, but because they want to challenge his messenger, messenger, capital M, and want to challenge the work of his messenger, Verse 20, his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. There are a few things I want you to see from this passage. Number one, the religious leaders agreed that Jesus was not Christ. They agreed that he was Messiah. I mean, you, you kind of assume that as the, 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 the text has been unfolding up to here, because at the end of chapter 8, they try and murder him, right? When, he's, when he says, before Abraham was born, I am He's claiming the name I am from Exodus 3. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. And so they pick up stones to try and kill him because they don't believe him. So you, you kind of assume that they have agreed that he's not the Messiah. But here we get told straight up that they have made this agreement, this determination among themselves. The second thing I want you to see from this passage is that the religious leaders hate Jesus so much that they want to punish And they have decided to punish those who trust in him. It was a big, big, big deal to be put out of the synagogue. That's what they're saying here. Anybody who who confesses that Jesus, who acknowledges that Jesus is Christ, will be put out of the synagogue. You were religiously and financially excommunicated, cut off. You could not fellowship or worship with other Israelites, and you could not do business with other Israelites. You would be totally blacklisted. That's what's, what's baked into this phrase, put out of the synagogue. And the third and final thing that I want you to see from this passage is these are pretty crummy parents. The parents of this blind man are not good parents because they're throwing him under the bus. We don't know. When John says, they answered, we don't know, in this passage he's saying, That was their response because they were afraid of what the Pharisees would do, that the Pharisees would cast him out of the synagogue. So they throw their son under the bus. They they, they redirect the Pharisees' anger to to their son. You go talk to him. 
just like the Mexican army at, at the Battle of San Jacinto, right? Where the Texans are screaming, remember the Alamo, remember Goliad, Mino Alamo. I wasn't there, that's not me. That's what the parents say, Mino Alamo, that's not me. I used that phrase one time with some guy from Pennsylvania. He looked at me like I had five heads. Mino Alamo, what are you talking about, Mino Alamo? We know what that means in Texas. The parents want to redirect the Pharisees' hostility. They want to redirect it to their son. I submit to you, these are not good parents. The Pharisees are desperate to discredit Jesus, so they summon the witness again. Verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. This is kind of a leading question. It's kind of what, what a lawyer would do down the, at the courthouse with a witness. When you were standing at the intersection and you saw the car go, go through the intersection, the light was red, correct? That's a leading question. The question is leading, the questioner is leading the witness to the result that the questioner wants the witness to say, that the light was red. That's what these guys are doing. That's what the Pharisees are doing with the man who's been healed from his blindness. Jesus is a sinner. We all know he's a sinner, right? There's something fishy about this whole thing, right? I'm telling you up front, we, the religious experts, we know he's a sinner, So tell us how this really happened. They're leading the witness to the conclusion that they want the witness to confirm. The man responds in honesty. Verse 25. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I don't know anything about Jesus other than he healed me. I was blind, and now I see. John Newton memorialized those words in his great hymn many, many years ago. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was, once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. John Newton wasn't exaggerating when he described himself as a wretch. Remember, he was the captain of a slave ship. What they did to those human beings was unimaginable. He says, I was blind, and now I see. Newton captured the words of this blind beggar, formerly blind beggar, and put them in his great hymn. The Pharisees pressure the man again in verse 26. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? This is the third time they ask the how question. They don't want to give glory to God. That's not why they're asking the how question. You can ask the question, how did God create the universe with a word? And that question can be to glory to God. Wow. How did God raise a man from the dead? Wow. That's not how they're asking the how question. They're asking this how question not to give glory to God, but to trump up charges against God's messenger because they want to kill him as evidence from their attempt to kill him at the end of chapter 8. Keep reading verse 27. He answered them, I told you already, and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? This man is growing weary. He's growing weary. He's got new eyeballs, and he wants to go see the world. And these guys, have, the Pharisees, have dragged him in, Multiple times now, they keep disregarding what he's saying, and so he uses a little bit of sharp humor towards them because he's tired of their unbelief. And he, he's not even a believer yet, by the way. He will be by the end of the chapter. It's just he sees this disbelief. He's already told them how he was healed. But that's not the answer they want. They want something that they can use in some sort of indictment against Jesus to to charge him with something. Keep reading in verse 28. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. 
We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he is from. You see, they find the idea of being Jesus' disciple, which means follower. They find that idea reprehensible. And so they use the classic, classic argument. This argument goes back a long time. I don't know if it goes back as far as Aristotle, but it goes back very far. It's the argument that me and my friends used to use in elementary school. I'm rubber, you're glue. Bounces off me, sticks on you. What? You're calling me a disciple of Jesus? You're the disciple of Jesus. Not me. You see how they're convicting themselves. Because their hate of Jesus makes the idea of being a follower of Jesus reprehensible. And in fact, he didn't call them disciples of Jesus. He just asked them. He asked them, are they disciples? Are they followers of Jesus? And that notion is so abhorrent to them, they attack and revile this man. The real issue here is the difference between being a disciple of Moses or disciple of Jesus. Judaism follows Moses, where Christianity follows Jesus. I'm not suggesting that Christianity says that Moses is bad or irrelevant. No, 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 not at all. The Old Testament is critical to understanding the New Testament. We study the Old Testament and the New Testament, the whole counsel of God's Word. The, New, the Old Testament is the foundation of for the New Testament. And you can't fully understand the teachings of Jesus unless you also study the Old Testament. But Christianity believes that Jesus is more important than Moses. More important than Moses. Christianity believes that Jesus is greater than Moses, that Jesus is God incarnate, and it was Moses who testified about Jesus, not the other way around. John 5, 14. John 1.17 says this, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. It's not that grace and truth didn't exist in the Mosaic law. It's that grace and truth now super exist. There's plenty of grace and truth in the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament now there's a super abundance of grace and truth. Jesus is greater, exponentially greater than Moses. That doesn't make Moses irrelevant. But it means that we follow Jesus, not Moses. We follow the one that Moses pointed to. At the end of verse 29, the religious leaders say, we do not know where Jesus is from. This actually is a true statement. We do not know where Jesus is from. In chapter 7, they said Jesus was from Galilee. But actually, he was from Bethlehem, where he was born. They thought Jesus was merely a man who originated from human parents. But actually, he was born of a virgin and he was and is God the Son with a heavenly origin, not a human origin. His origin, origin, is from eternity past. He existed before anything else existed. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He has a heavenly origin sent to do the work of the Father. Finally, the man addresses their ignorance. Look at verse 30. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does, does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Can I paraphrase? This formerly blind man sees how flawed the Pharisees' reasoning is. And he says this, Riddle me this, Batman. You say that Jesus is a sinner. And we all know that God doesn't answer sinners. God doesn't hear sinners. It connotes Psalm 66. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But God gave me new eyeballs through this man that you claim is a sinner, a deceiver. And in fact, that miracle of curing blindness has never been recorded, ever. Guess what is conspicuously missing from the whole Old Testament? A single event of blindness being cured. You won't find it. And this blind 
helpless beggar speaks to the Pharisees and says, I don't get it. You say this man's a sinner, a deceiver. We know God doesn't hear sinners. But this man has done a miracle that is unique in the annals of Hebrew Bible. Why? The answer is undeniable. This man must be sent from God. Is what this blind, hopeless beggar acknowledges. Look at verse 34. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Instead of celebrating, saying, Wow, praise God, you were blind from birth, and you've been a beggar your whole life. Wow, good for you. That's wonderful. Praise God for what he's done through you. There's none of that here. Because these are bitter, sour people. Bitter, sour Pharisees. What they do is they refuse to celebrate what God has done. And instead they punish him because he refuses to lie about Jesus. First they hurl insults at him. They have no response to his well-reasoned position. So they go to their go-to move, which was in chapter 7, and it's in chapter 8, and now it's in chapter 9. It's the move that I refer to as when, when the argument's not going well and, you know, you got nothing else, you just say, yo mama, right? They did it with Nicodemus in chapter 7. They said, you're a Galilean. That's a yo mama argument. In chapter 8, they said, it, they said it with Jesus. You're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed. That's a yo mama argument. And now they get to John chapter 9 and they say, you're born in sins. That's it. It's called, you know, the more precise way to say it, it's an ad hominem argument. When the, when the argument's not going your way, you just insult the other side. So that's the first thing they do here is they insult this man and their words contradict Jesus' words, right? They say the reason you were born blind is because you were born in sins, plural. Plural. Like he committed sins in the womb or he was committed sins on the way out or I don't know what it is. This is the opposite of what Jesus said, right? This man didn't commit sin, his parents didn't commit sin. But he was born blind so that the glory of God's works might be displayed in him. And the second thing that they do in terms of punishment is they put him out. Now, the putting out is putting him out of the synagogue. They blacklist him. They excommunicate him economically and religiously. As the chapter unfolds, and we won't have time to get to it today, but as the chapter unfolds, And concludes, Jesus will search him out. Jesus will find him and will bless him with the gospel, with the good news, and this man will be saved. Maybe you're here today and you have not received the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard the good news of Jesus Christ, but you've rejected it. Maybe you're here without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life. We want you to know that God loves you. God loves you with a love that will not let you go. God loves you with a love that pursues you, though you are his enemy. We're all the enemy of Christ, of God, before we come to Christ. We're born sinners, born rebels by nature, not in a cool way, but in a way that is an abject offense to a holy, righteous God. When the Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul, what must, I do, what must I do to be saved? The Apostle Paul said, Paul and Silas said it very plainly, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou, be, shalt, thou shalt be saved. Simple, direct, plain. It's not complicated. God made it very simple for us because he is a God of grace. We don't have to, to do some sort of complicated analysis. We don't have to work out a, a, a big formula. We don't have to figure out how many works do I need? Do I need a thousand works? To be, to, to be satis- for God to be satisfied with me? Well, what if I do a thousand and then I do some bad works? Is it, is it 992 that I now have? So now I need to get up back to a thousand. And how do you value the works? How do you value, we're called to work, but how do you value the work? None of that makes any sense. It makes zero sense. Because God is a God of grace and mercy, and He does the work. God, in the flesh, did the work on the cross. He says, don't insult me with your work for salvation. Now, after you're saved, I do have work for you to do as my child. 
But in order to be saved, in order to be righteous, you need to trust on the work of Jesus, and then I will transfer his righteousness to you. I will impute his righteousness to you so that you are declared righteous, though in fact you are not. But I love you, and I declare you righteous if you will accept my son, who I will sacrifice for you. He will take the penalty that is due you, which is death. The writer of Hebrews said that the penalty for sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so, we have a sin substitute who, who is Jesus. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, I challenge you, which one of you convicts me of sin? And it's crickets in John chapter 8. He speaks to the religious leaders, which one of you convicts, convicts me of sin? And he waits for a response. I suspect he just sat down and just waited. I'm waiting. John chapter 8. John chapter 9. They say Jesus is a sinner. The helpless, blind beggar says, I don't get it. If he's a sinner, how come he gave me new eyeballs? Uh, An an event, a miracle that has never happened ever. Because even the blind see. You can be saved by faith alone in Christ alone. That's it. Leave your works outside. He doesn't work. He doesn't want them. You have to come to God with the empty hands of faith. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you for who you are, for what you have done, and for what you will do. We praise you for having sent your Christ to save us. We praise you for recording, sending your apostles to record the works of Christ We praise you for these things. We glorify you for these things. And we thank you for these things. We honor you for these things. We ask that you help us not approach the word of God with boredom, with ho-hum attitude, but to approach it with wonder and awe. We're embarrassed by a prayer like that, Father, but it is a prayer that, that must be prayed. We ask that you break us of our rebellion, break us of our appetite to wander from you and to be consumed by the ways of the world, but rather to bask in your honor and praise and glory. Challenge us to work your works as your children, to bring honor to your name, that we may serve your people for the ages. We make this prayer in the name of his majesty, the Lord Jesus Christ. The King of the Kings.